Hi, I'm Yan. Hi, I'm Avon. Welcome to Lost and Refound podcast. We're a podcast discussing our personal journeys as modern Asian women and sharing inspiring stories from within our community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Lost and Refound today. We have Yan here. Hi, Yan. Hi, Yvonne. And today, Yen and I have an exciting guest. Her name is Nilam Patel, and she is our friend and a recent podcast guest. You might remember her from episode 30, where she educated us on autism and the importance of bringing awareness to this field of study. Personal finance is also another passion of hers, so we're so excited for her to share her journey and to educate us on our personal finances and some questions, burning questions that we personally have. And we are pre-recording this, but I just did my taxes and I had to pay some money this year, which I'm not used to. So we're also gonna talk about that and how to make sure that when you get to the end of the year, when you get to taxes, that you know exactly where you stand and really checking your own books personally. And you know, as women, mothers and family owners, we have a big duty to make sure that our budgets are right, but we also want to have some fun too. So we want to welcome Neelam. Hi, Neelam. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, Yen. Hi. And we are very, very interested to hear about your personal journey. Would you be able to explain to your audience why and how about you came to this passion, why you didn't run away from it like most of us? Absolutely. So my name is Neelam. I'm 38 years old. I'm a single mom. I live in Silicon Valley. Um, I currently work in the field of special education and home health care. And I work two jobs. I have a main nine to five job. I have another side job that I do like on weekends and evenings. I also run an online consulting business and I own a few investment properties. Um, about seven years ago, I got divorced. Thankfully, it was super amicable and we work really well together to raise the children. Like on that side of things, it was totally fine. Like it, you know, was something that we decided together. But at the time of the divorce, in terms of financially, it was a real wake up call. After we completely split everything and we were done with everything, um, I had precisely $500 to my name, period, $500. <laughs> That was a total wake-up call. The money that I was making was one of the lower um, amounts that I had been making at the time. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, rent is on your shoulders, um, daycare is on your shoulders, and that eats up, like, that ate up, like, two-thirds of my income all of a sudden, overnight. And when you go through the, you know, divorce process, you don't necessarily think about the financial aspect. You're just focused on your emotions and the children and, like, you know, that type of stuff, like family and, like, shame and how are you going to tell your friends? Like you don't think of like, okay, let's start putting numbers to paper until it's all done and you're already in it. You're not really thinking of it in advance necessarily. And then all of a sudden you have these like two little faces looking up at you, expecting you to know what to do. You have nobody to rely on. And my income just couldn't support my little family, my new little family in Silicon Valley. And special education isn't really known for being like this extremely lucrative, well-paying career. So fairly overnight, I grew this just really fierce determination to make sure that I could support my children, both emotionally and financially. So I did everything that I could at the time. I scraped all my money together. I was a coupon queen. 
I applied for different jobs, like more jobs. We ate very simply. Um, I took as many free items that was provided to me at the time from my friends. In fact, I have this couch in my living room, which I got for free from a friend those seven years ago, and I have, I'm going to keep it. I have zero intentions of upgrading it. It's almost like a kind of like throwback reminder, like this mm-hmm. is God from the, the friendliness of my friends, like the, their generosity. I started becoming really savvy about stacking coupons, offers, utilizing credit card points, using the credit cards responsibly. I never had like credit card debt. So that was never something I had to worry about, but just trying to figure out new ways to like get cash back and like little things like that, like here, $20 here, 15 here. It really helped me. So from that point, I started getting more jobs. I started moving up to the top of the ladder in my current position. I tried to look for different roles. Generally, when you move to a new position, you could get a little bit more money each time. And then I started my online business. So I do online special ed consulting um, remotely for people all across the United States and the world. That has tripled in growth in the past seven years since I started it. It was really this just deep-seated fear of not being able to take care of my kids, not having a roof over their head, not being able to feed them, which I feel like got me my drive and keeps my drive going because I still have those two jobs. I still have the business. I still, I'm, I'm a landlord now and I have no real like intention of stopping that anytime soon. And the, the drive that keeps me going from my kids, it's not necessarily like overwhelming me or weighing me down at this point. Mm. First of all, welcome back, Neelam. Thank <laughs> so you. happy to have you back. I know um, after our last episode, we were talking about this and we're really excited to have you back. So Welcome back. And second, as a mother, I'm bowing down to you. That is such a tough situation to be in. I have two children with my husband and I constantly worry about our finances. And we're both, you know, we both have jobs and we both have an income. I cannot imagine dividing up your property and having so little, realizing you have so little to take care of two children on your own and look at you now. We're now coming to you saying, help us with our finances. I have a husband who works and I work. <laughs> so your story is absolutely amazing. I just want to, I just want to give you props first before anything else, because I, I cannot imagine like how much strength it took and how much heartache and stress you must have gone through during that period. I'll never forget those first two years. In fact, now sometimes I'll have like kind of almost nightmares about it or I'll call my mom and I'll cry just thinking about those first two years. It was incredibly isolating. I lost a lot of friends. I was working all the time. I was stressed all the time. At that time, my children were one and four years old. So it was just, I I don't feel like that's something that I'll ever forget. And I think that'll help me continue with this journey and never feel like I'm always going to be grateful, essentially, for that time period to help me with my future and it will always, it'll, I use it to kind of help me in trying to give my own kids a step up or a leg up in their future if they, if I can as well, which is something that I, I didn't get from my family growing up. Yeah. And having two boys being a, such a strong mother, that's an incredible example for them um, growing up in the society we're in now. Can you share what's the like biggest lesson you learned in the first two years? That's a great question. The biggest lesson I learned is to live simply. 
if anything else, and I guess I was kind of on my way into this minimalistic type lifestyle without even really realizing it. I've always been kind of a born saver. You know, I, I'm just more of a frugal type person, but the idea of living simply was kind of a new concept or a new thought to me because when I was growing up, we had this really weird dichotomy of a scarcity fear-based mentality, but also this total abundance because of the, my parents, they went into this crazy six-figure bankruptcy. My dad didn't work. He, he hasn't ever worked. My mom's always supported our family. And it was really weird because growing up, you don't think about your parents with their finances. You just see things and you expect things to happen. And so I had this like three-story Barbie townhouse but at the same time, we were stealing bread and milk to eat. So I was like, are we rich or are we poor? What is this? How come I have this? And I have all these Barbies and books. And you're teaching me how to steal food from the store because we don't have enough money to eat. So are we rich or are we poor? And that's when I started figuring out this whole like keeping up with the Joneses thing, which is a terrible, terrible mentality to have. Because at the end of the day, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And it's only you that has to deal with the repercussions. Mm -hmm. When somebody gave me um, a dining table for free, I still have that dining table. Somebody gave me a couch. I'm figuring out ways to make like different pastas for like a dollar for my kids. Getting into that minimal type lifestyle without even realizing it in those first two years was definitely the like one of the biggest goals or not, not goals, lessons that I learned. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't matter. Nothing matters just you and your kids and your family and doing what you can for them. It's kind of funny. I think this is true for most of society, but I definitely being Asian, I noticed this within the Asian community is this Asians are very frugal, but they like to put on a face. So they will, you know, save money and like not throw away, like hoard everything, but then take out a loan and buy an LV purse or drive a BMW just to show that, you know, I make money, I live good, but then their finances are a mess but it's just this face that we have to show and growing up i was definitely very much influenced by that as well my parents are very frugal they have always been very frugal we lived as the middle class because they saved and they worked really hard um and you know i wasn't really given an allowance but i was watching everyone else and i it's interesting because i didn't learn from my parents I wish I had learned to be frugal like them. I didn't. I was such a shopaholic. I wanted everything. I wanted to feel, well, for me, at that time, I felt like if I wanted to feel like I was, I can live up to society's expectations or I wanted to feel like I was, I was accepted by society, then I needed to have all of these things. And that became a habit for me. And, you know, within the last couple of years, I have been really hard to live more simply but shopping is an addiction for me that I have to fight constantly. The minute I get too anxious, the minute I get too exhausted, the first thing I turn to is shopping. So that's something that I am still working on, actively working on. And I am also realizing, you know, I don't need that much to be happy. Shopping actually isn't making me happy. Yes, when I make that first purchase, I get that jolt of joy and adrenaline um, and serotonin. But then when I then go buy the thing again, I don't feel the same joy anymore. So that's something that's something I'm, I'm working towards. But it is really hard because I feel like we're very much raised in a society where we value having what's new, right? Especially now with fast fashion, it's always 
it's a new season, a whole new closet, right? Do we need a whole new wardrobe? No, I still have t-shirts from when I was in college, you know, and they still are just fine. Uh, and I have no intention of throwing them away, but I continue to buy new things that I throw away after one season. It's very common. It's very common for us to self-soothe in ways that may not be appropriate. Um, and I, I can really relate to you saying that, not in the sense of wanting to buy something, but in the sense of wanting to eat something. Totally relate to you. And the majority of people, when they are stressed, they buy or they eat. Honestly, how many people, when they're stressed out, go take a nice long walk? or take a bubble bath or something like, you know what I mean? Like the self-care things that we know we should do that are healthy for us. It's incredibly hard to do it. It's ingrained in us to shop or eat. It's easy to do. It's quick. And we get that instant jolt, which we may not get from a walk or a bath or reading a book or something like that. So it's, I commend you for, for talking about that. And it's not easy to change that type of behavior. Believe me. And I do both. I had cake this morning for breakfast because I was too tired to make anything. I just grabbed cake out of the fridge and that was my yeah. breakfast. Sounds about right. <laughs> and yeah, and when you're talking about shopping, we definitely have also had this conversation privately before that it is, is something that does bring me joy and also part of our career is we're pushing product on people as well. So I think that that's also where Yan and I have lingering issues, <laughs> products and merchandising. It is social media even, right? Being on social media and what we are what we need to do to make our own careers happen is about making other people want to buy stuff and trying to transition that naturally so that we don't have to have that type of career guidance anymore. And being able to obviously work for ourselves would be the biggest goal. Um, and having you already mentioned that you do your consulting business on the side. How did you set that up? And what's the best way to think about when we, me and Yan want to set that up as well? Um, this was essentially my like first type of side hustle, if you will. You know, everybody's trying to get a little bit of extra income as they can in the easiest way possible. And with the internet, it's made a lot of things possible now for people. Anyone can do anything that they want. Um, I found a niche within my field um, to become board certified in my field. You need a certain amount of field work hours and a certain amount of those need to be supervised by someone who's already board certified. Um, so I could provide supervised hours to people that want to come into this field. Um, I paid zero dollars for marketing since for these past seven years. I've only had my website up. Um, I'm part of some Facebook groups, but I don't even market on that. People just find me through my uh, Google search, essentially. Um, and I started with just one, one girl that I've worked with. And now I've, I'm working with approximately, I think, 25, 28 people at the moment. Wow. That's incredible. So it's, been, it's been really good. Yeah, I've, I've been really blessed. Um, I've always wanted to, to help people out. I've never increased my rates in the past seven years. Because um, there's some things where, um, you know, there's the financial part of it. But then I also want to be there to help these people coming into this field. And I don't want to, you know, bankrupt people to help them out. So um, yeah, for me, I, I guess I, I can knock on wood that it just happened to be where people found me through my website and it worked out well. 
Okay, this is a very important topic then because I've been reading a couple books. One of them was previously The Renaissance Soul and then your book that you recommended us, which is Quit Like a Millionaire. And there is a chapter and a passage in both books that talk about passions and making career out of passions or making not your career out of your passion and then focusing on your passion later in life. I mean, it sounds like from your story that you kind of took the latter where you focused on your practicalities first. How do you make your lifestyle? How do you make your essentials work? And then you focus on your passion that is now what you're currently doing. You're helping, you're helping people and doing what your gifts are. And at the same time, making some money off of that. But that's just almost, it seems like a positive side effect versus the core of your business. So I definitely want to talk about that and how, how that felt for you, knowing that you had to put yourself and your passions in the backseat at first for it to be the ultimate goal. I love that chapter in the book. Um, I think that it's so, it's so smart, you know, because so many people from the get-go, they want to do their passion project and they only want to focus on their passion project, um, which is fantastic. Like we need dreamers in this world. Um, at the same time, there does have to be that practical piece, especially for us, we live in the Bay Area, you know? Um, there does have to be a sense of, I still need to find a place to live. I still need to feed myself. Um, and unfortunately that does lead, like you hear those stories of like people who are trying to be an actress and they bartend for their nine to five or they waitress for their nine to five. No shame in that. It's practical. Um, so I, I do very much appreciate that chapter in the book where she's saying, go for your um, a, a well-paying position go for something that's a little more practical, a little more secure, job security, um, and then work on your passion project either on the side or after you retire or something. And like I was saying, with the internet now allowing us for all these different opportunities, for a lot of people, especially like the YouTube, they, they started their YouTube channel on the side and within a year or two, all of a sudden, they don't even have to do their crummy nine to five job anymore. That's their job. They're making millions off of that passion project. So if you spend enough time on your nine to five, you know, and doing that job, getting your paycheck, getting your benefits. But if you're, if you're also so dedicated to your passion project and you help that grow too, you won't have to wait too long to make that your main source of income. Mm. That's a good thing to keep in mind because I am guilty of wanting to make money on my passion project right now. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I also had a friend um, reach out to me about my passion project and I was asking her about her thoughts. Uh, she's also an artist too. And she also listens to this podcast. So she's going to hear me talking about our conversation. But uh, when I was explaining to her about my sustainability website and just ideas for how to make world and product more sustainable, she mentioned that sounds great, but that's going to be a lot of work. And you have to think, how are you going to monetize immediately? Not because you need to make money, but because you need to be able to fund all the work that you want to do or else you're going to burn out. In fact, you'll probably burn out in two weeks because you have so much passion, but then you think, well, I'm not getting traction because no one's looking at my site and no one's paying me, but you're thinking, well, I'm, this information should be free. At the same time, your time isn't free. Your resources aren't free. It's great that you want to give the world free information and that's very important, but 
you have to think about yourself first or else this business isn't sustainable. And then like you said, like there's many blogs and many services out there in the world. So what makes your blog and your services different and how can you keep that sustainability alive? Um, the sustainability of your job and of course the resources itself. So um, yeah, and I know that you also went through that chapter and I don't know if you have different thoughts now that we were, now that we're talking about it, but I do want to touch upon it. Yeah, I had very different reaction to that book. I actually, I read it halfway and I stopped reading it because it really triggered me. Um, in that, I think with that book, she's, she's definitely very Chinese. Where, where she's coming from, right? In that book, she definitely starts with saying like she has a scarcity mindset, right? That's how she views life. And she was taught very early by her parents to which means eat bitterness in Chinese. This is a very common lesson every Chinese person taught at a very early age. And that basically just means you have to learn, you have to learn that life is hard. Eat bitterness is a metaphor for life is going to be really hard. You have to learn to go through those hard times and you have to learn to sacrifice to get what you want. And I agree with that. I was definitely raised that way. But I think for me personally, I am a passionate person. I feel like this prescription of looking at a life very mathematically um, which is how I felt that she was looking at, you know, her career choice and like all the decisions she's made, her financial decisions. It worked out for her because it does make sense, right? If you calculate, if you make every decision very logically with calculations saying, if I do this career, this is how much I'm going to, time I'm spending school, how much money I'll spend on tuition. How, this is how fast I'll be able to get a job. This is what the job will pay me. Yes, you can get to financial freedom much faster than someone probably just following blindly after their passion. I agree with that. I feel like there needs to be a balance and it depends on the person. Not every single person can live their way, their life sacrificing, sacrificing, right? That's like me. I cannot live that way. I will literally go insane and you'll push me into my depression really quickly. I need passion in my life, but I also need to be practical. Um, and another thing I think to look at passion is, yes, you can be passionate about something, but once you're going to as a career, that's not, not necessarily what you'll be doing every single day, right? Sabo is very passionate about, about weed, about cannabis, and he got into the vaporizer um, industry because he loved building machines. He loved the, the research and the product development aspect, but then ultimately he was a CEO. So he did very little of that. And majority of time was spent uh, looking at finances, you know, training people, talking to people, talking to investors. So when you're thinking about, yes, I want to do my passion project, there's everything else included in your passion project. Taxes is gonna be part of your passion project. Finances, getting investors, you know, planning, production, all of that will be part of your passion project. So, so it's not gonna be, you're not gonna focus on just doing what you love. So for me, I feel like there needs to be a balance in that you, you should have a passion in the general career that you're choosing. You shouldn't hate it. Like, you know, if I went to say, okay, I want to be an accountant, right? But I hate math. Could I do it? Probably. I'm not dumb. I can figure out I can probably do it, but I'll probably be miserable <laughs> most of my time. Whereas do I love what I do now? Uh, one time I did love, you know, being in the retail industry and being in the uh, merchandise industry. I don't have the same passion anymore. And yes, I'm in merchandising, but I'm not really developing products. I'm more uh, looking at how to, you know, come with strategies, how to sell something. It's not necessarily my passion, but at least I have some sort of interest within this 
this industry. So for me, it's very much, I think there needs to need to be a balance with that book and with reality, right? You should figure out going to college, here are my choices, you know, and have a backup plan. My passion is art, but what's my backup plan? Because being an artist takes a long time. Yes, you can make it big, especially with social media nowadays, you never know what's gonna happen but you need to have a backup plan. And this is sort of what I teach my children as well. And I also don't tell my kids, you can be anything you want, because I think that is a false promise we're, <laughs> we're leading our children. You know, I pay very close attention to what they like to do, what their passions are, what they're good at, right? If they're passionate about singing, but they can't hold a tune, and they're just tuned up completely, I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you, you can be a singer. <laughs> you know, I'll lead you towards where your talent also lies within. But there needs to be a balance. Um, I hope that makes sense. But basically, you know, I don't disagree with with that book. I think she has a lot of really, really valid points. I just think in the mindset I am now, in that I spent entire entire year last year trying to focus on um, moving into things that I'm more passionate about and moving away from this, you know, make money for the sake of making money, that it didn't really align with my values. But I can see how, again, like when I was talking to my husband, he, you know, he heard bits of book. He's like, that is, that sounds like a miserable life. And I'm like, well, it's not for everyone, right? She's, she got to retire 30. So her life is incredible right now. Yes, she sacrificed. I mean, her car, college, she, she really said she was like, she didn't sleep for a week and took a whole bottle of cough syrup before exam. So she didn't pass out in the middle of exam. And that's how she operated her entire like college, right? Which is like studying nonstop, not taking any breaks so that she can finish faster. Hey, that works for some people. Some people have that focus. I don't have that focus. I will die. So it's not for everyone. Anyway, that's a very long explanation for your question. <laughs> I think that's, I think that those are all really good points. You can't pick a career that you absolutely hate and expect to get through any part of your working career doing it, inevitably it's gonna be a waste of your time and a waste of the money you spent on your degree and things like that. So I totally agree with you on that point. Like it should, you know, you should try and go for something that might be a little more practical. Maybe there's job opportunities for it, but something that you at least, you know, have some sort of interest in, of course. I totally agree with you on that. And the good thing too about the FIRE movement, which is what this woman did, Christy Shen, who wrote this book, is that, so she went for like the major, major intense FIRE movement, retired at 30, et cetera. And she had a partner. So she, you know, they got to share in creating that life for themselves. The good thing about the FIRE movement is that there's many different versions of it. There's like coast FIRE and barista FIRE and slow FIRE. Let me take a step back. FIRE stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. And this is a movement of people that don't want to do the normal nine to five and retire at 65 and live for 15, 20 more years and then die. <laughs> they want to salvage some of their youth. So they want to try and retire early. And these are people who generally, you know, have a savings rate of maybe 50% or so where they're saving a lot of their money in the hopes that they can retire a little bit early. And this is kind of the path that I think I'm hoping to take. And also I relate, another reason why I relate to her so much is all those numbers and nerdy spreadsheets. I have such a nerdy spreadsheet that I update probably daily right now. It's ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy. 
um, because I have this intense desire to retire early, but I want to be one of those coast fire people, which means that, or barista fire, I guess, whatever, which means that I want to retire early from my nine to five and potentially from my side gig, but still continue my online business, which is like 20 hours a month of working mm-hmm. and the income I get from my rentals to live off of. And then eventually dig into my retirement accounts. I want to travel and live overseas for a few months a year, which is, which will be cheaper as well. And another misconception about the fire movement is you're saying it's um, a lot of sacrifices, Mm -hmm. sacrificed a lot to get there at 30, Mm -hmm. hoping to get there by age 48. That's when my youngest flies the nest. So that's kind of my goal to retire by 48. But because I can't continue to live like I did those first two years where I'm scouring coupons, pasta, beans and rice type thing. I'm no, that's not sustainable and that's not my lifestyle. Right. I mean, yesterday I got my nails done. I took myself out for lunch. I buy myself flowers once a month. Um, and that, that's the thing with fire movement is you spend money on the stuff you care about. Mm-hmm. You, you splurge. If that's what the whole, that's like the whole latte effect where people say, don't buy your $5 latte because you could be a millionaire from that. No, if you love your latte, buy your latte. If you don't care so much about bedroom furniture, then keep your old bedroom furniture set for 20 years and buy your latte. That's mm. a, there's a lot of misconception about the fire movement. You spend money on the stuff you care about and then live frugally on the stuff you don't care about. Versus the the modern American, they want to splash out on everything so they can keep up with the Joneses. And that's what will keep a lot of people from having a good retirement or or being able to save towards retirement at all. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. Especially because when I'm thinking, even from a sustainable lifestyle perspective, you need to find out what you care about from a style perspective and an organizational perspective, because once you get your home or even your closet organized, then anything that needs to come into your closet or anything that would be new, you take twice the amount of time to think whether you really need it or not. So I think that that comes from the same part where what are your habits? Do you really need to wash your car every single week? Do you really care about that? And think about these natural, um, these natural tendencies that we might, might not think about on a normal day basis. And, and the fact that you do it every day on a spreadsheet, I need to know, I need to see that spreadsheet. <laughs> what are you putting oh, for in? Sure. I'll definitely um, send it to you for sure. Having the flowers in my house once a month, it makes me so happy. Getting, you know, traveling makes me so happy. So I'll like spend a little less on like, I don't know, a perfume or I, I'm trying to look around and see what else like, or I'll, I'll only rent books from the library. I won't buy books. Mm-hmm. So I can spend that money on my flowers and my travel and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Hi guys, I'm interrupting my own podcast to talk to you about Anchor. Anchor is brought to you by Spotify and is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It will also help you distribute your podcast across popular podcast hosting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Best of all, you can make money from your podcast on Anchor with no minimum listenership. So for those of us just starting out, this is very helpful. And do you know how much it costs to have everything you need to make a podcast in one place? 100% free. Yep, you heard me right. You can do all of this and make money for free. 
So if you have been thinking about starting your own podcast, now is your chance. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Now let's get back to the episode. I like how you explained that because I think that's what I was missing from the book. Because the book felt very extreme to me, right? She was giving up everything. Not just, I mean, she was also giving up sleep too. <laughs> that's free. But so, you know, she was giving up everything to be able to retire 30, which again, good for her. If you have that kind of tenacity, dude, you are a different kind of human. And I bow down because I can, I admire you so much, but I'm not that person. So I like how you explained that, that it's not about sacrificing everything. It's about looking at what you have and what you really need to make you happy and sacrificing things that are necessarily making you happy. You're just buying them for the habit of just, you know, buying this and that here and there. And I definitely noticed I started keeping a spreadsheet too on my finances that I, I track once a week, not every day, <laughs> but once a week, every Monday I go in, I look at the previous week's spendings and I detail everything down and break it down by, you know, who is it for, you know, and then I have it down by call like a chart of how much this month I've spent versus my husband versus how much we spent on the kids so we can keep track. And that was because before that, I never looked at our finances and after we saw our last house, we made, I think, over $300,000. And in two years, I blew through all of that um, by nothing, okay? Well, buying a lot of things, but nothing worth, nothing I even remember. And to the point, my husband said, that's it, you're doing the finances because obviously you have no idea how much money you're spending and what you're spending it on. And so now that I'm tracking, I'm able to see every little thing that I'm spending, I became slightly obsessive where I started, you know, I started doing a lot of research on what's the best savings account I should be getting with the highest interest rate. And then I realized, oh my God, the banks are not giving anything for interest rates. Like Bank of America is like 0.01% per year, which is like, well, like how much is that going to give me a dollar? Yeah. And then I'm looking at best credit cards with the best, you know, points and cashbacks and benefits. And it has made a, a difference and actually kind of fun. Uh, it's it's almost like a game now. So every single week, I look at how much money did I spend, how much money I put in savings, how much you know dividend I received from you know all of my different investment accounts. Um, so it's being really fun. I would love to know, you know, what's your process for for your spreadsheet? Are you tracking everything you spend? Are you looking at you know how much things are accruing? Yeah, I have three different kind of sets of things that I check. So I, my spreadsheet is a, essentially a net worth spreadsheet, and I also put my financial goals for the year in there. Um, so I'm, I'm always tracking to see like how close am I to hitting um, a certain amount in my retirement accounts this year, and how much am I paying on my mortgages for my rental properties. Those are kind of my two main things. And then I also um, have a tracker where I track all of the things coming in and out of my checking account which is mainly just for my income from my, my jobs. Mm-hmm. And another um, tracker that I have for all of my outgoings, like my credit card spending, you know, cable, internet, food, things like that. And I have a budget for that too. Before I used to be a little more strict with my budget and I would do the whole like 10% goes here and 15% goes here, but I don't need to do that anymore. So instead I'll tell myself, okay, you have X amount to spend for the month. And then I start writing it down and I start minusing the amount from that total. And once I start getting a little low and I want to get, go out for lunch, I'm like, well, you wanted the flowers, so get to go out for lunch, right? <laughs> I also use um, Wealthfront, which is a really nice website where you can um, 
enter you know, all your logins for your different bank accounts and credit card and mortgages, and then they'll spit out your net worth for you. And then you can kind of keep track of how you're doing on that as well. Mm, okay. I use Mint for that. My boyfriend uses Mint. Mint is also really good. Um, it's really good for tracking as well. And there's um, personal capital too. There's a bunch of other ones. Mm. The one thing that I do have to say about Mint is that you have to edit a lot. So you just have to be willing to edit. And if you do your own spreadsheet, then everything starts off the way that you want it to. And you do just plug in numbers. So I could see it working both ways. And in fact, Malinka, he uses Mint and he has a personal spreadsheet. So he does both um, every single week. Yeah, he's really good about it. And the only reason why I'm good about it now is because like, yeah, I finally made it into a game. And I think maybe the way that you guys are talking about your personal spreadsheets, I'll upgrade to a personal spreadsheet. <laughs> and, and honestly, it's harder for me when it gets to the holidays, because then those are sometimes some things that I don't really think about or like charity donations. I don't think about that until when they have to happen because those come up as a surprise, but I have been better about that in starting 2021, <laughs> setting a budget for charity donations, knowing when and how many gifts like I'll likely have and knowing how many weddings I'll be going to or baby showers. So that's been really helpful. And I'm, I'm so glad you guys talked about that because even as a mom, I'm, I'm sure that you guys are also thinking about college education too. Where's, how are you guys budgeting for that? I tell my kids, they better get a scholarship. Oh, <laughs> oh they're going to community college. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, to be honest, we have not started on kids' college uh, savings. We should. We say every single year we should start, but we have not started on it. I was conflicted with college savings initially because I was thinking to myself, like, well, I need to be prepared for the mindset that I may be um, single forever and not have that other income. So I need to worry about my own retirement. You can get a loan for college, but you can't get a loan for retirement. Um, and then and I never got a dime for college. So I was like, and neither did my ex-husband. So we were both kind of like, well, if we didn't have to, like we got loans, we paid it off, they can get loans. Um, and then I was thinking, you know, but I'm, I'm finally doing well in my life right now. I'm, I'm, my income is good. I'm, I'm feeling very stable. I was like, well, why can't I give them a leg up? The leg up that I never got. Even if it's a little bit of money, like it's something, right? So I weighed the pros and cons between opening up um, what's called an, an UTMA. It's a, like basically a brokerage account for minors and a 529, which is just for educational purposes. And um, as we talk to my kids, as I talk to my kids about like, what do you want to do in, with your life? You know, what are you thinking about? My oldest is going into middle school soon. So, you know, start kind of dabbling with some ideas. Um, I decided ultimately not to go for the 529 education account just in case they wanted to take a year off and explore or go straight for a job. I'm not gonna be upset if they don't decide not to go for college or anything like that. So I went for the UTMA and I am I'm contributing monthly to their both of their accounts. Mm, oh, that's a good thought. I think that that's definitely something my parents considered when I, when I was younger. And I started saving for college. Like they taught me everything about saving for college when I was in elementary school where, I, yeah, yeah. Well, because they would give me an allowance and then they say, but you can't spend it. You just save it. That's what that's I thought. A, an that's such an Asian way of giving allowance. Here's money, but don't spend it. 
No, but straight to saving. Exactly. Where they said, oh, you did great on your, you got an AR test. You get $20 in your savings account. I'm like, thanks mom. I'm really excited, right? For saving for college. So I think there's two ways where you can definitely inspire the kid or do it um, themselves. And of course, um, I, I did learn how to save that way, but it was a very scarcity mindset. So the way that you're talking with your kids now and the way that Yen's teaching her kids, I think is a lot more sustainable and a lot more realistic because that's also probably why I tend to spend more because I didn't think I had it. And that's why um, money was always a very tough question for me. And even my family now, we don't like to talk about money. Like we don't, and we're all adults. We don't talk about money. Like Malika and I will talk about money all the time. And I think it's just such a healthier habit to keep, like just keeping even money between friends and saying like, hey, like, how are you guys saving for this? How are you guys making this happen? Because there's so much knowledge that we can get and share with each other that is a lot more practical than a lot of the books or YouTube articles or YouTube that you'll see or even Instagram or TikTok. There's a lot of TikTok hacks, actually. I started looking them up today. Um, Some of them were about real estate. So I was curious for when you started getting into real estate, what type of knowledge or books did you have to read? I'm, that must have also been kind of scary yourself to start getting into but, it. Yeah, it was. Um, I had been renting at the time of my divorce and my parents, my, my mom, they lost our childhood home. They had to sell it because of their, you know, Jones's mentality. And I saw my mom just like heartbroken from losing, having to sell her childhood home. Like, in her late forties. Like, you don't, you, you don't want to be in that position. Um, so one of my hugest things I wanted to do was to buy a, like saving my money to buy a house those first two, three years after the divorce was just like a huge, huge goal for me. And I felt like it was so unattainable. None of my, even my married friends didn't own homes, let alone single friends or like single parents, like nobody had owned a home. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to, I got to make this happen. I also previously, and during my, my life of rentals had had a moment where I was a mother and uh, my landlord didn't want to renew my lease because she wanted her niece to live in that house. And I, I still remember being like, oh my God, I have 30 days to find a new place. I got to find a new preschool that's close to the new place. I was really freaking out. I was like, I never want that to happen to me again. So I just, I saved every penny, everything went towards the down payment of my house. At the time, I didn't really read any books about it. I wasn't on any Facebook groups or anything. I just did a lot of research and I had some friends that were realtors and like mortgage um, officers. So I just kind of like picked their brain a little bit. And then when I did finally buy this house that I live in now, oh my gosh, I mean, I had to learn about like replacing air filters and stuff like that, that you don't really think about. I got this place in December, 2016. And it was a a year or so after that, where I was starting to feel like I wanted to dabble in um, investment real estate. And again, I, I was trying to look up stuff. Like there's this um, pretty popular like website group called bigger pockets, which is a great resource for anyone that wants to go into investment um, real estate. But when you talk about like cap rate and vacancies and Um, the 1% rule with your rentals and like finding a property manager and lawsuits. And it was very overwhelming to me. And I didn't want to listen to all that stuff. It was too much. So I actually just kind of just did it. I just went for it. 
I bought my first condo in Stockton, which is where I was raised. My parents still live there. I figured that it was a, it was affordable and it was a place that I knew, um, a condo, so I wouldn't have to worry about like fixing the roof and different things like that. Um, I was able to rent it out on my own immediately. And um, that was in, so I bought this place in December, 2016. I bought that place in June, 2018. And um, since 2018, I've bought four more places. My most recent one was in January of this year. Those ones are in a different state. They're in Missouri. I have a property manager. He handles everything for me. He takes care of finding a good tenant and all that. And I, I, I'm still on some Facebook groups about being a landlord and all those things. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have necessarily like a book that I've read or research other than um, checking out the Bigger Pockets website and, and Facebook group. I think that that's a really good place to start. And also talking to friends, like making friends of, for people that are in this field and just kind of hearing their experiences and what types of things to look for. Like now I can look for like, I can think about things like how old is the roof and is, the, is it in a floodplain or not? Um, is there a basement? Like I can start to, I, that comes with talking to people mainly um, and hearing other people's stories and then going through things myself. There was this huge freak storm in Texas and in the Midwest recently. And one of my houses, the um, pipes burst, they froze and burst and I had to pay for that. And, you know, home insurance, inspection, all that stuff. So I'm still learning. I'm still learning as I go. It's been an amazing journey so far and I'm, I'm very happy that I went into this route. It's a great way to make some residual income. Once you go through the first year or so and you're making all your updates and stuff, you do tend to lose money, <laughs> um, but long-term. And then also this is something else I can pass to my kids to give them a leg up in life. That's a good point, rental property. I mean, you're making it seem very feasible for me. <laughs> you are selling me on this idea. You're the first friends that I know that has made quite a success story out of rental properties, even virtually, because that was the piece that I wasn't sure how it would work. Um, but I know that all your properties are not necessarily in the same state that you're living in right now. But then finding a property manager and owners that would be responsible, I think is really helpful. How did you deal with all the homeowner issues virtually? Did you actually fly down? No, no. Okay. No, I've, um, so I used to go to St. Louis and Missouri quite often in the past. And that's why I felt comfortable with, um, investing in St. Louis. I love my Redfin app. I have it open all the time, whatever city, Me too. <laughs> current city. Yep. And I mean, you can't help, but have your eyes open up huge when you see that there's this like three bedroom house for sale, 1400 square foot, like hundred K. Yeah. We're in the Bay Area. That's like, makes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, Bay Area. it's it crazy to think so of. Sad. I know. It's absolutely insane. And it, you can't help your wheels turning and thinking like, wait, I can do something here. I can do something with this, you know? Um, and so I've never laid eyes on any of my properties. But I will say I spent at least six months researching different parts of Missouri, researching the tenant and landlord laws, um, researching and interviewing my mortgage person, my realtor, my inspector, and more, most importantly, my property manager. 
six full months before I started investing and feeling comfortable. You've got a good team behind you and they've got the, the traits that are important to you. So like my biggest trait was communication. And I mean, within 24 hours communication, I don't want to hear from you two days later, every single person on my team, when I email or message them, they get back to me within hours. And I need that. If I can't, if you're looking after my house that I own and I'm responsible for, I need you to communicate. That was important to me. So my team that's out there now, I trust them so much with my properties. I feel hundred percent comfortable having them keep and, and watch over my properties. Mm. So do you have the same team for all of your properties? Yes. Okay. Oh, and how did you, so you went, you spent six months researching. How, how did you go about looking for each of these? Uh, are they, I mean, are they from like the same property management company or did you have to look for each person separately? I looked for everyone separately. Um, I started out with just like a Yelp check, just kind of like see what other people said about these different people. I checked out their websites. I did uh, like a Google um, search for different people. I spoke to a bunch of them on the phone. Um, Yelp and Google were pretty much my top two ways to figure out different things, like to, to, to start to dip my toes into these different areas and then just calling them and making a list of questions and stuff like that. So you don't actually talk to any of your tenants. They work directly with tenants. You just work with the, the your team. Yeah, my property manager, he um, he's kind of like the go-between between the tenant and myself. Mm-hmm. So I've never spoken to or seen any of the tenants. Um, if they need anything, he'll just message me and tell me and then I immediately send the payment over um, I want to make sure that my tenants are extremely comfortable and happy, you know, and, and the house is well-maintained. Um, but that's pretty much that. Okay. And then buying a house, I mean, that's a huge process. How do you feel confident buying a house virtually in a different state? Um, my realtor is so amazing. So what she does is she takes a video of the property. So of course, in advance, I'm looking at the pictures on Redfin. I'm looking at all the background info. I'm checking out all the disclosures. Um, and then what she does is she'll go visit the property. She is, she's amazing. She takes a video of the neighborhood. So I can even see like what's across the street. What are the other houses look like? Are they well-maintained? Are the, is, is there families walking in the streets or place I would feel comfortable living with my kids? She takes a video of the entire house, the backyard, and then she gives her a little input here and there, like, oh, like, you know, this wall's a little chipped, or I see that this, you know, furnace isn't properly wrapped, little things to think about when I put in my offer, like contingencies. Mm-hmm. So, and then she uploads it to YouTube. So watching those videos feels like I'm there. Mm-hmm. The mere fact that she knows exactly what I like, she knows I like turnkey, she knows I want X, Y, Z, She'll straight up tell me like, Neelam, I didn't even feel comfortable going inside this house. I'm like, leave, <laughs> leave right now. I trust you. If you don't feel comfortable, I don't want to buy it. Okay. And then what are your thoughts between, you know, um, owning investment properties to rent versus flipping a house? Flipping a house takes, a to, for, for me, it takes a lot more diligence and you have to be there. That's not something that you can do from a different state, because I'm saying if you're not there and your contractor decides his team is going to work on another project that day and they're going to come back next week. And that's a whole nother week that you're paying mortgage on a house that you want to flip. 
plus the tax implications of selling a home that you've had for less than two years, there's, there's tax implications there too. Mm, okay. so just things like that. Plus you, you really have to know like a plumbing guy, a HVAC guy, an electrical guy, a windows guy, a kitchen guy, a right. cabinets guy. And I just don't have that kind of knowledge of construction nor do I have the passion or inclination to learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joanne Gaines, she makes it seem so, so easy. I oh, I know. I want them to do my house. <laughs> yeah, I think they did a really, really nice job in terms of upgrading uh, the fixer uppers of the world. And when we see houses here that are fixer uppers, Listen, guys, they're really not that cheap. <laughs> the ones that are in they're this area. They're over a million dollars for a fixer-upper that you have to gut from inside out and then rebuild, basically. it's. I was looking at a property. I was looking at Woodside, right? And then I saw this property. It was like $1.6 And I'm like, oh, okay. And I click into it. And I'm like, this house looks like it's literally put on this land. I was like, oh, just land only $1.6 without the house. I'm just like, oh my God, people. <laughs> Why yeah. do my plan was to retire when I'm 40, which is next year. Um, and I was going to move out of the Bay Area. But now it sounds like we're going to stay in the Bay Area. So now my new plan is to retire when I'm 50. So I have 10 more years. <laughs> <laughs> On top of that, you see that beautiful, you know, that property for 1.5 million. Um, I'll save it. And then when it sells, I'll look back on it and it's sold for like 1.9 million for the price around here. Everything goes yeah. for way over. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. That's crazy. We, when we look at housing, you know, we're like, okay, our budget right now is 1.7. Well, when you look at our house, that's around 1.3. Although, because we're going to be keep bidding upwards, right? If I find a house 1.7, that's going to go over 2 million. Yeah. Crazy. But you have less competition. The competition is tough, like in certain price ranges. So I think knowing what to bid and the practice that you have on knowing that you can you can make a really, really good offer and win is, is knowledge that I need to get used to because that's this part that's really stressful. Falling in love with houses or properties that you might lose and having yeah. to start the process over again. It, it takes a lot. I think it takes a lot for me. It's very yeah. heartbreaking. House yeah. shopping is a very uh, heartbreaking experience, especially on the Bay Area where it's, we are not just competing with other homeowners, we're uh, competing with investors, right? Oh. A lot of overseas, oh, you don't know about this, Yvonne, a lot of overseas um, Chinese people are trying to hide money from the government. So they come and they buy a house out here with cash. So imagine when you're selling a house, who are you gonna you're gonna take a bid that's right at whether what you want with credit, like with a loan or with cash? That's gonna be overbidding, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not so it's not just the housing value. Housing here is really expensive. It's the competition we're competing with overseas investors who are trying to hide money from the government. Which I wish there was a law here that said like a house needs to be on 30, 30 days on market for homeowners first before they can go into investors. But that doesn't benefit the state because the state makes money off of your uh, property um, tax, right? So they want your house to sell more, yeah. which, which kind of just, it really sucks for homeowners home out here, especially for us young families that just don't have that much savings to be out there buying a $2 million house. Yeah, 
No, it's definitely like a lot to think about for sure. And yeah, certainly like my friends and I were, were always talking about that. And at the end of the day, Malinka saying, maybe we should just keep writing. <laughs> it's just sometimes easier to think about, but we, we do want to plan. I'll, we'll obviously share the journey with our listeners and like where we're going. And I know that you have a lot of tool recommendations as well. Are there any other resources and tools that you also recommend to uh, finance newbies? Yes. If you are really a really, really beginner and you still have, you know, like you're, you're still dealing with credit card debt or student loan debt or really debt of any kind other than like mortgages, a really good start is this book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich um, by this guy named Ramit Sethi. Um, he's, it's, some of the stuff in here is a little bit outdated. So some of the numbers and the maximized numbers for like 401ks, they're, they're not correct. So make sure that you research the current contribution limits. But he has a very no-nonsense kind of, you know, listen up crybabies kind of way of writing, very direct, which I really enjoy. Um, and his, his examples in here are just really straightforward and easy to read um, for beginners. I also like this book called Retire Before Mom and Dad, The Simple Numbers Behind a Lifetime of Financial Freedom. That's also a really good, easy read. And then of course, I like this, um, I like the Quit Like a Millionaire book by um, Christy Shen. And finally, I also like this book called Playing With Fire, which was also made into a documentary. And then another book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. We'll list all those titles in our show notes. Yes, we'll definitely list them. I already want to get the minimalistic book because that already sounds like it's right up my alley. And being able to to actually even have the time to read all this is just such a luxury like right now. Um, and in addition to just checking your finances, it's definitely something I, you know, I get a little bit of fear opening up the bank account sometimes, making sure everything's okay. I know everything's going to be okay, but there's still that residual fear that sometimes happens. And there's a lot of good podcasts out there about um, financial freedom podcasts and really good financial tip podcasts. So I'll link down some of my favorites that I do listen to. And we'll, we'll definitely make sure our listeners can also reach out to you as well in case they have any questions uh, about this or your previous episode. Uh, what is the best place for people to reach you and find you? Um, so my name is Neelam and um, I do have a website for my business, bcbasupervisionhours.com. Um, or you can definitely um, reach out to Yvonne and Yen and they can you know, reach out to me as well. Um, and I'd be happy to help out in any way that I can. Amazing. Thank you so much, Nilam. We're so appreciative of you being here today and being able to share your personal finance journey. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really appreciate your support for our little podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it will mean the world to us if you can leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. This will help more people discover our podcast. You can find Lost and Refound podcast on Instagram at lost.and.refound. If you want to email us, you can do so at lostandrefoundpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I hope you stay positive and creative. Bye.